I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're we're a Tap Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on dirty conspiracies, exciting adventures, and alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And for season two, we're focusing on Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars in a weekly conversation. We're so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hello. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Laura. And welcome to the penultimate. Woo. <laughs> I was so excited that I remembered the number. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good, it's a good one. It's a round number. But I was going to say the penultimate episode of season two. Oh, yeah. That's very exciting as well. Yeah. we Just this and one more episode. It's crazy time. We're almost done with all things Capone. Yep. I'm gonna I'm gonna miss him, but I'm excited to move on to our next topic, which we'll we will be announcing soon. Yes. Super soon, probably. But- Vanessa and I just have to figure our stuff out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we're announcing on social media, so you should follow us so you can keep an eye out. Yes, on Instagram and Twitter, we are at a tap on the wrist. And then you know you can you can email us with your ideas of what you'd like to hear us talk about. Tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. Uh, but anyway, how's life going? Any anything new or exciting? Anything alcohol related? Well, I Not did have, have you found anything in your walls? nothing in my walls unfortunately but I did venture out to like an an actual brewery I forgot that that used to be a very normal part of everyday life going places but uh I did venture to a brewery that set up like an outdoor tap room and even though it was freezing like snow on the ground five layers bundled up um it's super nice to like go and do something semi-normal um and the brewery was great it's called evil twin brewery and it's in brooklyn well it's it's like the border of brooklyn and queens um okay but uh did they have heat lamps at least Yes. I feel like you can't have outdoor dining if you don't have heat lamps. Yeah, no, definitely not. But it's still like there are heat lamps, but obviously like for safety and stuff, they're not 100 degrees. So we were still very bundled up. Right. And my coat didn't come off. It wasn't like I was like comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) And we all kept just saying like our toes were cold. Like it was... It was relatively comfortable. Like we were at picnic tables and there was like me and two friends. But um, you know, like you're relatively comfortable with the heat lamp above you and your coat. But like my toes and like my bottom legs, which weren't getting any of the heat lamp, were kind of cold. Yeah. But you know that 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 makes sense. But I'm sure it was it was a price you were willing to pay for a little normalcy. 
Yeah. It was one of those times where it's like, oh, you're seated at the table. You can have your face mask off. And I was like, actually, I think I'd like to keep it on. <laughs> it's rather toasty yeah. under here. <laughs> yeah (laughs) that is like the one one of the pluses obviously besides protecting you um is that in the winter it keeps your face warm (laughs) I know the other day I was walking and I was like you know what other than the fogging on the glasses I don't mind the face mask so much like people don't know if I'm making weird faces it's very like makes you more anonymous yep and really have to put a ton of makeup on yeah, and it keeps you warm. So, yeah. I mean, it's a perk all around in the winter. <laughs> yep. Okay, so at this brewery, though, like, what did you drink? Um. Okay, so this brewery is known for making really great beers, but also kind of having a a crazy experimental side to them. So they make a lot of, like, really funky beers, too. And they also do really interesting seltzers, like hard seltzers, uh-huh. like not just like pineapple or watermelon, um, but like, you know, cardamom, vanilla root beer, like I hard seltzer. So, so here for that. Yeah. I'm, uh, I mean, if you've been listening to podcasts, you've probably heard me say that I'm not a huge beer fan. But I did have this one beer that was so ridiculous. I had like. It just sounded ridiculous, so I had to order it. And I, I the name I forgot the name entirely, but it said something about birthday. But it was like, uh, birthday cake, cotton candy, blue raspberry, and there's something else in the flavoring of it that I can't remember. But the beer was bright blue. <laughs> Uh, you posted a picture of it on your Instagram stories and I saw it. We'll, we'll post a picture of it on Instagram, but it, it was in fact bright blue. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie. When it was served, I was like, well, this is fun. It's very Instagrammable. But then like I took a smell of it and it smelled nothing like beer. It literally, it smelled like a childhood carnival. And it is it a beer it, that I would like? I think it's a beer you could drink. Because it wasn't, it wasn't like super hoppy or beery. It definitely had like a high alcohol content. I'm not saying this is like a 2% beer. Like it it was like 7%. So definitely get you drunk, but it, it tasted very sweet and very like almost like a juice. Yeah. But like, it's like, it's like the beer buddy, the elf would drink. (laughs) Or Vanessa Velez. (laughs) Or Vanessa was. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was just nice to go and try out a new brewery because I've only ever had their beers in like bars before. So I've never been there and it's so close. And it was nice to kind of get out and do something normal. So I'm excited yeah. for that to become like a regular part of 2021. Totally. And I can't wait to go and try both their seltzers and maybe one of their beers that are less beery. Yeah, we should do it in the spring when it's less cold. Totally. I agree. I don't, I don't really <laughs> want to go sit in the snow. <laughs> yeah. Although I'm sure it wasn't as crowded as it will be when it's warmer. <laughs> this is true. It was very safe and socially distanced. So I don't know. 
What about you? Anything new and exciting? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can't not ask because that would be rude, but I don't know what's going yeah. on. No, yeah, no, I'm just still working from home and uh, doing nothing. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's how we, we are define this year of our lives. I know. Uh, we're sorry for the shitty audio again this week, but um, it's just the intro, we promise. Um, Laura's getting ready to head to Florida for the week, and uh, we didn't ha- we didn't have time to meet in person, but yes, we still wanted to make sure we were bringing you an episode. <laughs> yes. So this episode was recorded together in person the way we normally do them, but this intro is virtual the way the way we did it the beginning of the pandemic memories <laughs> <laughs> not always great ones <laughs> but uh i think you guys are gonna like this episode we are tying up a lot of loose ends maybe some of the questions you've been hanging on to for the last couple episodes like what happened to so and so and you know uh where did he go so yeah it's almost like a list episode, but not a little, yeah. a little bit was there's a little back and forth because we're going to different characters, but, or people, yeah. they're not characters. They were actual people. <laughs> we're, we're closing a lot of chapters today. Yeah. So enjoy. Enjoy. All right. So we are going to be telling the stories of the ends, the endings of some of the characters that we've gotten to know throughout the season. And um, we at first had, like, the four main people. Like, we were each going to tell two stories. Well, hold on. Let's, of the people that are still alive. Of the people that are still alive, because <laughs> most of them are dead. Um, and then Laura threw out Bottles. You gotta tell the story of Bottles. You gotta tell about bo- How many times have we gotten Bottles this season? <laughs> we, have to, we have to wrap his story up. We do. As, as we have to wrap up. The other four people we're going to tell you today as well. Yeah, you'll, you'll find out as we go along. But we're starting off with our friend Ralph Bottles Capone. Bottles! Bottles! Um, so, because Bottles isn't as famous as his brother Al, there isn't, like, tons of information Says about who. him. who? <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of the information I found was a little piecemeal. But, you know, we're, we're going to wrap up his story as best we can. So, after Al was convicted and sent to prison, it seems that Bottles did remain active with the Chicago outfit for some time after that. According to the People's Source, he uh, even hosted several high-level outfit conferences at Capone's home in Palm Island, Florida. But in 1932, he, like his brother, was convicted of tax evasion. He only had to serve three years and not in Alcatraz, so (laughs) he had a little bit easier. Um, And after that, at some point in the 30s, Bottles buys a home in Wisconsin, um, and he also starts to manage a hotel and a tavern in Mercer, Wisconsin. The hotel is called the Rex Hotel, and the tavern was Billy's Bar. Don't know who Billy is. Uh, And though he had served his time... The government continued to harass him over the years because they wanted the money that he hadn't paid them. So 
the government strongly believed that that Ralph Capone was still earning money outside of what he was reporting, which was about three thousand dollars. I think it said a year. Was it a year or a month? I think a year at at the Rex Hotel, like being the barman at the the Rex Hotel and the Billy's Bar. Um. So I guess he also owned a cigarette machine vending company. Again, it was very piecemeal, so I couldn't find like a lot of details. But at some point, the government decides to go into the cigarette machine vending company that he owned or was a partner in. Um, and they seized 240 machines and three safes. According to my Al Capone Museum, they put these up at auction and the government netted about 16K. And that was put to pay off two, part of the 200K or the over 200K that Ralph owed them. Um, then in terms of his personal life, we know a little bit from when we discussed prohibition agents, but sometime again in the 30s, down on his luck, the Capone's prohibition agent brother, Richard James Two-Gun Hart, uh, reached out to Bottles for financial help and Bottles gladly did help him. Um, and he also facilitated a reunion between Richard and Al before Al would, uh, after Al got out of prison and before he ultimately passed. Um, and I read that after Al's death, which we'll talk about later, uh, Bottles cared for May and Sonny Capone. Like he made sure that he took care of them. Um, he also handled all the funeral arrangements for Al. So like, even though he was criminal, he kind of like, he cared about his family and he would be there to help them. Like, even though, you know, Two-Gun Heart had turned his back on them, he was still there for him when he needed him. And then in 1950, which is the next piece of information I could find about him, uh, he was summoned to appear in front of the Kefauver Senate Committee. Mm -hmm. Did not say that right. Uh, and that was being held in Chicago, and he tried his best to answer the Senate's questions um, on his associations and his incomes, but he would never reveal any mob secrets. Like, he kept hush-hush. He wouldn't give away any secrets, or, you know, he wasn't like, I know who planned the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. He was true to the mob till the end. Kept it mom, yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if they're talking about the same... Thing, or if like different sources had different years but historynet.com said that in the fall of 1951 the federal government brought new tax evasion charges against bottles um, and this is where if you listen to the prohibition agents episode uh, Richard James Hart identity gets exposed because he is called as a witness um, by the defense to testify on behalf of bottles so like the media finds out like Oh shit, one of the Capone brothers was a Prohibition agent. Um, that's really all of the information that was out there about him. Uh, he never did have to pay the full amount of taxes he owed to the government. Of he not. got away with, with not doing that. Uh, and he lived in Wisconsin for the rest of his life. He continued to run the hotel and tavern uh, until his death of natural causes in November 22nd of 1974. Um, he was, yeah. yeah, he was till 74. Um, he was originally cremated at Park Hill Cemetery in Duluth, Minnesota. 
uh, but his ashes were buried at the Capone family's grave site by his granddaughter in 2008. So they moved him, moved him to be with the rest of his family. And that's really the only places that I could find like a good amount of info were Wikipedia. Sorry, not sorry. And my Al Capone Museum. Always coming through. My Al Capone Museum. They've been a <laughs> resource this year. Yeah. So that's that's bottles. We got more exciting stories to come, I promise. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just kind of interesting that, like, he was such a big part of the Chicago outfit, and then he goes on to live, like... Just running a bar. Yeah, pretty ordinary life. Right. For many years. Yeah. Like 40 years. Yeah. Crazy. Get it, bottles. <laughs> I am now going to wrap up another friend of the season. Um, <laughs> and this is Mayor William Big Bill Thompson. Or William Hale Thompson is his real name. Yeah. The, the one that reminds me of Trump every time. Oh, or neither. <laughs> so we started the season discussing... Uh, Big Bill and how many of his corrupt policies helped guide the organized crime scene in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty easy to say that without Big Bill as the mayor of Chicago, it's unlikely that Al Capone and the Chicago outfit would have been as successful as they were. Right. You know, they they formed this alliance during his second term as mayor, and it's really what boosted the Chicago outfit to their level of like yeah gangster kings <laughs> they, um, they needed the support yeah honestly they, well, because they needed, uh, they needed someone to tell the police to look the other right, way exactly yeah. yeah they needed someone that was at the top yes. to help them out so while Capone loved Big Bill not everyone was such a fan of his. No. And Stop. I think in the episode um, of The Untouchables, when they are doing all the investigations, I actually read, because that's actually when he loses the, the third term at being mayor, mm-hmm. um, I read a quote from the Chicago Tribune that, like, completely tore him apart. I didn't want to, like, reread it, because we've already read it, and it was pretty long. Mm-hmm. But, like, they hated him. Yeah. The city yeah. was like, he needs to go just as bad as Capone needs to go. So he does lose in 1931, and he is no longer mayor of Chicago in that push to clean Chicago up once mm-hmm. and for all. Um, and he did not leave as a respected politician, um, much like... Our friends <laughs> are not friends. I was going to say, did you just sorry. say our friend? <laughs> sorry. Much like our former president, Donald Trump, um, one might say these were like two peas in a pod. Yeah. Big Bill and Donald. Yeah. Um, I actually found an article written by the, the Chicago Sun-Times in September of 2020, and it was titled... Before the Donald, there was Big Bill of Chicago. Yeah. I'm glad that we're not the only ones that see this connection. <laughs> and so these are some of the the quotes I pulled from this article. Oh, I can't wait. It said, Respect for science was null and void in Thompson, Chicago. 
just as it is in Trump's White House. Uh huh. Scandal, lies, and exaggerations mark both administrations. Both men expressed respect for foreign leaders who did not or do not have America's interests in mind. The need for applause, affirmation, and admiration also mark both Thompson and Trump. Wow. So, like, he really was the Donald Trump of the 1920s in Chicago. I wonder if Trump knows about this guy. Idol. He probably knows the whole biography. So, I mean, I just wanted to reiterate. He's often described in history terms as the worst mayor in Chicago's history. Mm-hmm. It's how they wrote about him after he left Obst- uh, um, blah, blah, blah. Papers often wrote about him after he left office as um, Thompson was a demagogue. He fouled the city's reputation, and when he finally left office in 1931, after losing to Anton Cermak, he took the Republican Party with him. Um, and that is fact. William Thompson was the last Republican mayor of Chicago in wow. 1931. Imagine Trump's the last Republican <laughs> Well, that's what the article surmises. Will that be what happens to the United States. Yeah. Um, so it's a really interesting article because it makes those comparisons. Um, so in 1931, he is done and out, um, but his career in politics doesn't end there, or so he thinks. Okay. Uh, so in 1936, he actually ran for governor of Illinois. He lost. Good. He secured 3% of the vote. Hot. Uh, but you know what? Big Bill doesn't give up. So in 1939, he gives it one more shot to be Chicago mayor, but he loses again. Um, and after that, he really does kind of go into a reclusive lifestyle. Mm-hmm. He kind of realizes no one respects him anymore, and he's kind of taken a giant fall. Yeah. Um, he does spend the rest of his life living in Chicago. Uh, doesn't have a, a quote-unquote home. He lived in fancy hotels and would just move around, um, but not for very long because he actually dies March 19th of 1944. Okay. Um, he, at the time, was 74, though, because mm-hmm. he, he lived a pretty long life prior to getting into politics. Yeah. Um, at the time, he was living at the Blackstone Hotel in Chicago. He died... After suffering a heart attack, it says in an oxygen tank or an oxygen tent in his hotel. Um, he had apparently been very ill with like a severe chest cold, hmm. and okay. he was like on oxygen, and they like knew he was sick, and then he had a heart attack, and he just couldn't recover. Right. Um, he is buried in Oakwood Cemetery in a solid bronze casket. Um, he lived very wealthy for the remainder of his life off the money he made from being um, allies with Capone. Right. And it's just kind of noted. I mean, if, if he could hotel hop, then yeah. yeah. Um, despite the fact that at one time many people loved him and he, he ran for mayor and was well respected and won and was multiple re-elected. elections. Yeah. Um, and people enjoyed his political antics. And I don't know how much people or listeners remember, you know, 
he was very beloved at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then he made some really questionable choices with the race riots and right. things like that. Um, Sounds so familiar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when he died, very few people attended his funeral, however. Um, and one reporter wrote that there was not a flower nor fern to be seen. Wow. Um, after his death, however, they located two safe deposit box in his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the tune of $1.84 million at the time, which would be equivalent to $26.7 million today. Damn. And you know what? The IRS does not fuck around because they took every penny that he owed them. Yep. Uh, and it wasn't all of it, so his wife did get um, a lump sum of money, which she lived off the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. She died in 1958. Um and that's really, it kind of is not a glorious ending for him. Nope. But he never faced any prison charges. Nothing for any of the corruption, any of the things he did. Um, I did mainly use two articles. That one before the Donald, there's the Big Bill of Chicago, written by Dominic Pagia of the Chicago Sun-Times. Another article uh, from WTTW. Uh, mm. and it was actually called the original Chicago cocktail, Crooked Cowboy. So she created a cocktail based on him. Oh. Um, but it had some information about his like ca- like life after prohibition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did use the people source as well because I used the people source for every single thing I did. In this. When you're trying to piece together these kind of stories where yeah. like, it's not as well known and not and you know, in the middle of a pandemic, I'm not going into a library no. scouring. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the people source was really like a jumping off point for yeah. all of my stories as well. And I like found some of these other sources through there. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Next, we're going to be talking about the end of the story for Hattie with a body, Jack McGurn. Oh. Yeah. So as we all know from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre episodes, um, McGurn was arrested but never brought to trial for the massacre. Because of the blonde alibi. Because of the blonde alibi. And because they didn't really have any evidence. But but his blonde alibi, which a reminder was his girlfriend, who later became his wife, Louise Rolf, um, claimed to have spent the whole day with him. It's blonde alibi. Doing as you do. Doing as you do. It was Valentine's Day, so it's a... Uh, yeah. yeah seems plausible. Was Valentine's Day a thing back then, really? I don't know. Huh. That'd be interesting. Like, when did Valentine's Day become the holiday it is? Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, Even though he got away, possibly, with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, not proven, um, things weren't super easy for Jack McGurn anymore. Um, not only did his boss and friend Al Capone get arrested and serve time in jail, but McGurn was also gaining a lot of notoriety, um, and the outfit was not a fan of the fact that he was becoming so well-known. So in April of 1930, McGurn was added to the Chicago Crime Commission's public enemies list. Uh, He was number four. I think we've talked about this before. And I'm going to talk about it, too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
But yes, McGurn was number four, and this report was published nationwide. So, like, the Chicago outfit was like, oh, fuck no. Like, everyone knows who you are. Everyone knows your face. Um, And so, Frank, is it Nitty? Frank Nitty? Yes. Uh, Who we will talk about in future weeks, but who does take over the Chicago outfit. I feel Um, like that's a name people know, though. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, I didn't, but sure. (laughs) So Frank Nitty, um, like I said, takes over the Chicago outfit, and he basically, like, ousted McGurn from the gang. He was like, nope, you stay the fuck away from us, sir. Um, And his fellow gangsters also began to shun him. We don't need your hot body. (laughs) Well, according to my Al Capone Museum... The reason his fellow gangsters were, like, really shunning him was because they, quote, despised his cockiness cockiness and good looks. So, I was like, clearly my Al Capone Museum's a fan as well. <laughs> um, so, what does a disgraced gangster do once they're ousted from the gang that they murdered from? For? Start a band. They become a professional golfer. <laughs> that was my second guess. <laughs> So, McGurn was a silent partner in the Evergreen Golf Course, um, which was located on 91st Street and Western Avenue. Um, It was also a mob hangout, so he began to spend a lot of time there and apparently was actually very good at golf. Like, he he had a gift, was shooting in with golf. So... I mean, you do aim in both. Yeah, yeah, you took good at, like, hand-eye coordination. Justified. <laughs> oh man. Um, another fun fact is that goes with what we were just saying is that there's a rumor that he would keep a machine gun in his golf bag at all times. There was there was a gangster that did that. Oh, you're right. Golf bags. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's rumored he also did that. <laughs> That's it's one of the guys that killed. yes. Um, Now that you're saying it, I remember. Was it Jaime Vice was killed by golf bags? And McGurn together. Oh, McGurn got got it from him. (laughs) I think it was like McGurn was across from the church, and golf bags was on the corner in case McGurn missed. He had a second aim. But, like, that was the thing. He carried his machine gun in his golf bag. That's where he got it from. (laughs) Two buds with their bags. (laughs) (laughs) With their golf bags. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, what else could you keep in a golf bag? <laughs> and golf clubs. Also, according to apparently FBI documents that were released in December of 1999, singer Bing Crosby was a golfing buddy of Jack McGurk's, the Christmas singer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like White Christmas, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know. They were just good old golfing buddies. They probably met at like the Green Mile. <laughs> Green Mill. Green Mill. Green Mill. The Green Miles is Stephen King book and movie. (laughs) God, there's been so many names. So many. So, as he was progressing in his golf career, um, on August 25th of 1933, he entered the Western Open Golf Championship, uh, which also had well-known golfers like Tommy Armoire, Jacques Hutchinson, 
Oh, Jacques. <laughs> these names mean nothing to me. I don't know who these I people are. I know Jacques. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we have some listeners that like golf that know who these people are. <laughs> so he entered under the name of Vincent Gibhardy, um, which was a play on his real name. His real name was not Jack McGurn. It was Vincenzo Antonio Gibaldi. Uh, so his so the Vincent Gebhardi was like a play on his. Yeah, real did anyone name. know his real name? Why didn't he just go with his real name? Apparently they didn't. Apparently they also knew his uh, aliases, which I'll get to in a second. Okay. So according to my Al Capone Museum, I wanted to include this because I still think that my Al Capone Museum also has a crush on Jack McGurn. They wrote they specifically had to write that he looked relaxed, tanned, and, <laughs> and was wearing gray flannels. They love him. Um, and he was actually doing really well in the tournament again he was a really good golfer but unfortunately for him the Chicago police chief detective uh, recognized McGurn's alias and so he was like interesting I'm going to send some people to arrest him and he did on day two of the tournament on the seventh green the officers presented him with a warrant and told him that he was under arrest under the criminal reputation law. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he was in the middle of a game and he politely asked to finish said game. Uh, and they let him do that. They were like, yeah, right. You can, you can finish your golf game. But of course he was thrown off, so he did not do well for the He's rest no of the game. no longer relaxed. No, he was not relaxed. And, well, I guess he was still tanned, but... <laughs> He <laughs> went <laughs> pale. <laughs> but uh, it completely threw off his game, and he, like, screwed up, and it effectively ended his golf career. The stupid cops arresting him. God darn it. Again, according to my Al Capone Museum, this left Machine Gun Jack to be reduced to accepting 50-cent bets. Like, he was, like... He was struggling financially. He was doing 50-cent bets. Like, he was doing anything he could to get money. Um, Apparently, he got involved in a few narcotic deals, but nothing that was of consequence. He, like, really wasn't doing well. Um, His golf career was over because of these stupid police officers. (laughs) And because of all this and, like, losing his friends and, like, losing the outfit, he started to turn to alcohol and drinking. Uh, They noted that he was chasing after lots of women Apparently liked blondes, even though he was married. Um, and he also started to throw his weight around. He made it known that he could cause trouble for some of the pretty big mobsters. Um, it's rumored that he actually threatened Nitty directly um, if he didn't allow McGurn to get back into the rackets in the game. Like he was like, "I'm gonna expose you all," which is probably. Not the way to go. No, yeah, probably a mistake. I don't know about you. I'm not, you know, threatening a mob boss. No. No, doesn't seem smart. Um, So now we're going to jump forward a little bit to February 15th of 1936. Jack McGurn is 33 years old, our age. Okay. Um, And let's take note of the date. It is one day after the seventh anniversary of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So McGurn wakes up. He decides he's going to go bowling with two of his friends. 
So, yep, he goes to a second floor alley um, on Milwaukee Avenue in northern Chicago. Um, It's believed that when McGurn went to pick up the score sheet, because I was like, what's this? Oh, it's not electronic back then. (laughs) (laughs) So he went to get the score sheet, and the bowling alley's owner handed him a Valentine's Day card. So I guess that by 36, Valentine's Day was a thing because they had Valentine's Day. No, yeah, it's it's real old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, like early 1700s. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's real old. <laughs> um, so he gets he gets this Valentine's Day card. Uh, it's addressed to Jack McGurn. It's been left by someone. We don't know who. And the card reads, You've lost your job. You've lost your dough. Your jewels and cars and handsome houses. But things could still be worse, you know. At least you still haven't lost your trousers. Wow. They're a poet. Yep. And the card shows a man and a woman standing behind a for sale sign selling their household goods. This is the card. It's very basic. It's not very lovey-dovey. No, it's... Yeah. He looks angry. Yeah. Um, and he apparently takes this card and puts it on a bench and uh, goes about his bowling. He didn't think that was weird? I mean, maybe he just thought someone was making fun of the fact that he was fucking broke? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but like you get this Valentine's Day card that feels very personal with your name on it delivered at a random bowling alley like what kind of gangster doesn't go <laughs> hey something doesn't feel right here I mean apparently he was losing it because he was drinking and threatening people left and right so I guess he just wasn't thinking straight um, and thought that he could go bowling but while he was bowling a man entered and yelled, you move, you die. Um, and I was a little unclear because, like, different sources kind of said different things. Um, I don't know if three separate hitmen went into the bowling alley or the two men that McGurn was with and this third person did this. But three men <laughs> formed a semicircle around McGurn um, and shot him three times in the head and once in the back. He died instantly. Hottie with a body. R.I.P. Wow, that's tragic. Yeah. The Valentine's Day did not, card did not tip him off. Some rumors state that the Valentine was then thrown on his body uh, when he was killed. And some people say that that's, that he never got it, but most historians agree that he was given the card before. Right. Although, it would make more sense if he wasn't, because it is weird that he just ignored it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, after the shooting, the bowling alley was evacuated, including including McGurn's two friends who took the score sheet with them to prevent police from learning their names. So, that's why I don't know if they were the ones that were involved. Oh. But we don't know who they are. Uh. Despite the fact that there were over 20 witnesses to his murder, no one was ever charged, unsurprisingly. I feel like that's a common common thing to happen. A gangster gets murdered, everyone sees it, but I can't, no I one can't knows. <laughs> um, so there are three different theories about who planned the murder of Hottie with a Body. 
So the first theory is the one that you would probably think makes the most sense. Um, it was thought to have been revenge by George Bugs Moran uh, and the Northside Gang in retaliation for McGurn supposedly being the mastermind of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Right. Valentine's Day card right after the anniversary. That all makes sense. Another theory that's also related to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre is that McGurn was killed by James Gusenberg, who was the brother of Frank and Peter Gusenberg, who we know are two of the victims of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Also yeah, makes sense. Yeah, Northside gang related. And, yeah. 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 Um, but the most popular theory that I seem to come across was that it was actually that McGurn was taken out on Frank Nitti's orders. I was going to say, that one makes sense too. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, he'd been threatening them. He threatened him directly, actually, um, saying that he would spill secrets. So... It's believed that two men, Claude Maddox and Jack White, were two of the suspected gunmen um, working for Frank Nitty. Is it Nitty or Nitty? Nitty, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that they planted the Valentine's Day card and the timing of it just to like throw the cops off so that the cops would think that it was Northside gang related. But it was actually the Chicago, Chicago outfit taking him out. Wow. Yeah. Um, Later, well, no, no, I think it was the next month, but less than a month, McGurn's half-brother was also gunned down by three men. He was killed at a Chicago pool hall after saying he knew who killed his brother. Uh, he had said, I know the guys who killed Jack, I'm going to get him. And he didn't, he got killed. Oh, yeah. wow. Well, damn. Yeah. So, Machine Gun Jack was laid to rest at Mount Carmel Cemetery. In Hillside, Illinois, he was buried on February 18th of 1936, and Al Capone's mother and sister attended the funeral as a sign of respect and thanks for serving their son, brother, um, for all those years, because Capone was in jail at the time, so Capone couldn't be there himself. Um, I mean, so like, him and Jack were, they were together biffles. for yeah. the whole, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it was like, they went to like show their appreciation for like all the production. Yeah. All the murders. <laughs> um, and at the head of McGurn's coffin, the Capone family bought a six foot tall pillar of white rosebuds and lilies with the inscription from Al. Because uh, he couldn't send them himself, obviously. And uh, my sources for, for our dearly departed Jack McGurn, again, I use the people source because it, it helps. Uh, and then my Al Capone Museum and also the Mob Museum. And that is uh, the end for, for Hottie with a Body. Man, what a what a season full of Hottie with a Body stories. I know. He's been in a lot of episodes this he season. He has. I mean, he did a lot of Al Capone's dirty work. Yeah. I'm now going to talk about Bugs Moran. And I feel like... It's been a couple episodes since we've really mentioned the Northside Gang. Yeah. Because yeah. we did the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and then we did the whole investigation and imprisonment of Capone. Yeah, we were, we were focused on Capone. Because he's all Capone. Yeah, so, we, can't, we can't forget about his rival, though. But we can't. We, can, we could never wrap up the season if we didn't tell the story of... 
the Northside Gang and Bugs Moran. Right. And Bugs Moran, our intended victim uh, of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, survives. Right. Correct. He never, he doesn't go into the garage that day. Um, and, you know, he survives the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. But the Northside Gang really never recovers from it. Mm-hmm. Um, they definitely never get back to the level they were pre the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And that's for a couple reasons. One, losing so many members of their organization in one hit really kind of freaked out some of the members. And like top members of the organization. Right. And also it it took out a lot of leadership. Yeah. So while Bugs was alive, like a lot of his closest men were gone and they just couldn't really rebuild quickly. Right. And then the second part which we have talked about pretty at length in in the last couple episodes, organized crime in Chicago took a big hit after Mm -hmm. the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So all of a sudden, you know, everyone's on the low and they're not, you know, bootlegging as, you know, openly as they were. And and they're like, oh shit, there's consequences. Yeah, (laughs) the, the North Side gang just took a hit they had to kind of pump the brakes right go a little bit underground and they could just not rival with the chicago outfit pre the st valentine's day massacre the chicago outfit had grown so large that really the st valentine's day massacre had bugs been shot and killed it would have been the end of the north side gang anyways yeah would have taken over their territory quickly right so the fact that that backfired on Capone. It also kind of made the Northside gang fall apart anyways as well. Yeah. They don't fully die out for a couple years, but they are hit pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And as Vanessa mentioned, in April of 1930, the Chicago Crime Commission compiles their public enemies list. Yeah. So... McGurn is number four. Mm-hmm. Bugs Moran is number six. Um, and all of a sudden, like, Moran's not really safe to go anywhere, right? He right. He, too, is now super notorious. Everyone knows what he looks like. Mm-hmm. So all of this comes together and, like, Bugs really doesn't know what to do. So... he. They linger in the Chicago area. They do some bootlegging still, the Northside Gang. Um, obviously, the, he, it's one of the theories he takes out McGurn in 1936. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, it's way smaller caliber than it had been in the 1920s. Right. And then we're going to talk about this next week, but the end of Prohibition happens. Mm-hmm. Bootlegging is not necessary. They tried their hand at racketeering and gambling. It's just... It's not working anymore for Bugs. Yeah. So he leaves Chicago. He leaves gang life behind. The Northside gang completely collapses once he leaves. And the Chicago outfit is going to take over most of their territory um, once Moran steps away. Right. So as Moran leaves Chicago and the Northside gang... He's not really done with the criminal lifestyle. Okay. Um, Once a criminal, always a criminal. 
you know, just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure there are people that have recovered. When we, you know, we've talked about Bugs Moran before, and he was very erratic. You know, he would take his machine gun and just start firing it, and mm. like from his car down a street. Yeah. Like, he was showy, like he Capone. liked yeah. the adrenaline rush of crime. I yeah. think. Um, and so he reverts to those earlier gangster ways. He gets very involved in petty crimes such as mail fraud and bank robberies is what um, Interesting. they say. Okay. Yes. Um, and then I did read somewhere it was very interesting. He always kind of feared for his life and mainly he was afraid of Capone seeking revenge for not killing him during the St. Valentine's Day yeah. massacre. And so I read it in one source that in his new neighborhood, Moran's neighbors would notice that if Bugs was driving, um, he would pull into a parking space after rounding a corner until the cars that were behind him had passed before continuing because he was so paranoid that he was constantly being followed and like people were going to take a hit out on him. Interesting. So he was paranoid for the rest of his life? Yeah, he just kind of like never got over that fear that someone yeah. from the outfit was still going to attempt. Right. Um, on April 30th of 1939, so jumping forward a little bit, uh-huh. uh, Moran is convicted of conspiracy to cash American Express cashier's checks. Uh, the total of $62,000. He was arrested because there. it's not very clear if they were stolen checks or fraudulent checks, Mm -hmm. but whatever the case was, he shouldn't have had them, and he shouldn't have been cashing them, and he was. Yeah. And so he was arrested. He goes to, like, his first trial, and they tell him that there's going to be a trial, but he can get out on bond. Mm-hmm. He posts bond, and instead of waiting for his court date, he flees. Okay. Of course. Of course, uh, Bugs. Uh, so he is then recaptured by the police, mm-hmm. um, and he actually serves over five years in jail for the cashier's checks. Okay. Released on December 21st of 1944. I mean, surprising he wasn't put away for worse crimes, but sure. Yes. Five years in prison uh, in the early 40s. Then he is released in 1944, the end of 1944, and he picks up his petty crime lifestyle once again. Um, Just can't stop. Can't stop. At this point, believe it or not, Bugs Moran is penniless, and people don't know how and or why he has no money, because it's... It's noted that he was one of the richest gangsters in Chicago during Prohibition. Right. And we're a mere, like, 10 to 15 years post his time in Chicago. And it's gone. And it's gone. Penniless. Like, he had nothing. Um, Wow. Like, I want to know where the money went. Yeah. Like, all these other guys had it in safe deposit boxes and, like... McGurn, too, spends it all. These two, they just spend all their money. Um, So on July 6th of 1946, Bugs is arrested once again. Okay. This time, it is for the robbery of a bank messenger where he stole $10,000. 
Um, this happened in Dayton, Ohio, at a tavern. Um, in It had happened in 1946, or 1945, he gets arrested in 1946, goes to trial, found guilty, sentenced to 20 years in prison. And he goes to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to show you like how broke he is at the time, when the FBI arrest him for this crime, they find him renting an upstairs apartment in like a small ass town in Henderson, Kentucky. Like he doesn't even own like his own wow. house. He like is renting an apartment from this couple like at the top of their house. He like Damn. literally had lost everything after being one of the most a powerful huge gangster. Gangsters. Yeah. yeah. So, Bugs goes to jail in 1946. Um, He ends up serving around 11 years of this sentence, this 20-year sentence, Mm -hmm. but gets paroled in 1956. Immediately after being released from prison, like, immediately, Mm -hmm. they set him free, he is rearrested. Because in the two years he was free, 1944 to 1946, he robbed a bank in Ohio and they knew he robbed the bank and they were just waiting for him to get out of jail so they could to arrest him that. for that crime. Oh um, my gosh. And so he gets rearrested. He goes back to prison. He's found guilty in 1957 and sentenced to 10 additional years for that bank robbery. However, Bugs does not make it very long in prison during this third stint. Um, he died of lung cancer a few years into that 10-year sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, he was placed at Leavenworth Federal Prison in Kansas during this third, um, just because he had so many crimes. He was so notorious. But, like, all these things he went to prison for, again, none of it was prohibition or nope. bootlegging or the crimes of the North Side The gate. murders. The murders. It's all... The petty crimes post those years, I mean, I'm glad that he didn't just freely live and he right. did go to prison, but not for what he should have. I know. Like, it's not justice. So, uh, Bugs does die February 25th of 1957 at 63 years old, and it was noted he was estimated to be worth about $100 at his death. Oh my gosh. Um, he had no one claim him from prison after he died. And so he received a pauper's burial in the prison cemetery. How depressing. Yeah. I know. What a downfall. Yeah. I I like, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. And I was like, oh, why do I feel sad for him? I know. But he was pretty terrible. But I kind of feel sad. I know. Um... So, that's that's the story of Bugs Moran. Uh, I used the people source, and then I also came across an article in the Washington Examiner, um, like, crime history section called Bugs Moran Arrested. It was written by Scott McCabe. Um, but, I mean, he just literally in and out of prison, petty crime life, until he died of lung cancer. Wow. What a sad fall from grace. I know. Like, he just, he had the life, and then didn't. Didn't. (laughs) Damn. Alright. We've come to the end. 
the end of Mr. Capone. Vanessa just handed me a tissue. <laughs> I know it's because I needed to blow my nose, but I like to think maybe because <laughs> this story is going to be sad. It is similar to, to Bugs, where, like, obviously both Capone and Bugs were, like, kind of horrible people, and they were responsible for a lot of deaths, but it kind of feels sad for him. Yeah. Uh it is a sad and, and feeble ending to uh, America's most well-known gangster. So we left off with Capone having both his health and his mind failing due to syphilis. Um, as I said in that episode, he had been paroled from the Federal Correctional Institution at Terminal Island on November 16th of 1939. After that, Capone was referred to John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore for treatment um, for, I think it's paresis, pa- paresis? Uh, I don't, I'm not saying that right. It's inflammation of the brain that is caused by the later stages of syphilis. Um, but John Hopkins refused him based on reputation alone. They were like, we do not want Al Capone in our hospital. Um, instead... A hospital called Union Memorial Hospital, which was also in Baltimore, took him in. Can um, a hospital do that? Back then they could, I guess. I don't know if they still can, but but yeah, they didn't want him because of who he was. Um, but Capone was apparently so thankful for the compassion and the care that he received at Union Memorial that he donated two Japanese weeping cherry trees. Are they still there? I don't know. I need to know. You should Google it. What is it, Union Memorial? Union Memorial Hospital. Let's see if that's... Capone, Japanese weeping cherry trees. <laughs> I don't even know what a weeping cherry tree looks like. I should have looked it up. Okay, let's see. Yeah, well, 2014, it was still there. I mean, if it's still... It looks like it's still on the website, right? Capone's cherry tree. They're pretty. Yeah, they are pretty. They're like Japanese cherry blossoms. I yeah, think. it reminds me of like the DC, yeah. DC cherry blossoms. Um, they're very pretty. And he gave them as a thank you for, for the care that they gave him. Um, but less than a year later, on March 20th, 1940, Capone left for Palm Island, Florida, where he would live out the rest of his life. Um, in 1942, so jumping a couple years after that. Um, I'm okay. sorry. Okay. I don't mean to rain on your parade, but on this website, the information they have posted about his time at this hospital has to be included. What? What does it say? At Union Memorial, Capone was allowed to take over the whole fifth floor. Obsessed that foes would try to poison him, Capone brought a food taster during his five-week hospital stay. His entourage also included bodyguards, his barber, a masseur, and various family members. Are you? He was still living that high life. What what website is this? The hospital's website. Uh, oh, he he couldn't stop living that high oh, life. Oh no, it's no. The, I'm sorry. It's welcome to baltimorehun.com. But it it start. It's about the cherry trees at the hospital. Uh huh. But then they like had that, and I like was scanning it, and I was like. Are you kidding me? This is crazy. He just goes <laughs> to show you how ridiculous he was. I know. How to have his barber and a sore. That's what I need when I'm in the hospital. <laughs> so, like I said, he does 
after like a short few weeks go to Florida. 1942, penicillin begins to become mass produced in America. Capone actually becomes one of the first American patients to be treated with it. Still, still somehow has influence. Um, and the penicillin does slow the progression of the syphilis, but at this point it was too late. Um, so while it slowed it, it didn't cure it, and it obviously could not reverse any of the damage that had already been done to his brain. At this point, it's noted that Capone begins to hallucinate, and he also begins to suffer from seizures. While living in Florida, Capone would regular, regularly visit Dade County Medical Society, um, and unbeknownst to him, the FBI apparently planted agents there to watch him. Like, I don't know if they didn't believe that he was really sick, and they were like, we gotta keep an eye on Capone. Um, one of the agents reported back that Capone was babbling gibberish in a slight Italian accent. Um, they also said, quote, he has become quite obese. He is, of course, shielded from the outside world by May. Um, and that is true. Apparently, during this time, May, like, really tried to keep his life super quiet. Um, he was apparently pretty irritable, though it was noted that he was still very sweet around children. Uh, but he, like, liked to fish, but wouldn't really go out. Um, if he did, it was to, like, occasional trips to the drugstore. She really tried to, like, shelter him. Um, and as... As she did this, he would be at home, and he basically, like, lived in his pajamas, which, like, same Capone yeah. <laughs> during <I> quarantine. <laughs> um, so he would often be seen walking around in his pajamas. Again, he suffered from a lot of hallucinations, and these delusions, like, started to increase. They became more frequent. So one thing that he did was he was on an ongoing quest to find his long-buried treasure, uh, he claims that somewhere on the property he had buried treasure and he spent all day in his pajamas looking for it all the time. Never found it. No one ever found it. So and They still haven't found it, right? Like that's a big... No. So either he was delusional and like making this up or he hit it real well. Yeah. <laughs> and then another delusion he had was he would often have conversations, like full conversations with long dead friends. And his family just would, like, play into it. Like, he'd just sit there and talk to Jack McGurn. Oh, no. <laughs> so sad. Um, Johnny Torrio. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Sitting there reminiscing with Torrio. Also, in 1946, um, a Baltimore... His physician and a Baltimore psychiatrist examined Capone, and they concluded that he had the mentality of a 12-year-old child. Oh, wow. Yeah, his mental, he had mentally declined, um, so he, he had the mentality of a 12-year-old child. This was also noted by the FBI. Um, and then a year later, um, on January 21st of 1947, Capone suffered from a stroke. He regained consciousness and started to improve, but unfortunately, it also coincided with him contracting bronchial pneumonia, um, and that kind of just worsened his condition. And he suffered from cardiac arrest on January 22nd. Um, on the 24th, he gained a moment of clarity and he assured his family that he was going to get better. But sadly, that was not the case. And the next day, 
Saturday, January 25th of 1947 at 7.25 p.m., surrounded by his family and his home, Capone died at the age of 48. What a short, tumultuous life. I know. And, like, such a sad decline at the end. Like, I just picture him sitting there, like you said, just chatting with, like, Torio or Colosimo even. Like, I, you know, just, like, thinking that these people were still alive. It's so sad. But his family, wanting to remember him for the showy nutcase that he was, <laughs> uh, wrote a rather interesting obituary. I'm going to read you a quote from it. Death had beckoned to him for years, as stridently as a Cicero whore calling to a cash customer. (laughs) But Big Al (laughs) had not been born to pass out on a sidewalk or a corner slab. He died like a rich Neapolitan in bed in a quiet room with his family sobbing near him and a soft wind murmuring in the trees outside. Such a weird obituary. Such a weird obituary. Like a Cicero a whore, whore calling to a cash customer. So strange. So Capone's family declined an autopsy um, to like find the real cause of his death. Um, but his body was flown back to Chicago for a burial on February 4th of 1947. He was originally buried at Mount Olive Cemetery or Olivet. Uh, but in 1950, his remains, along with those of his father, Gabriel, and his brother, Salvatore, were moved to Mount Carmel Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois, which is also the same cemetery Jack McGurn was bur- buried in. I read on my Al Capone Museum that he was buried in a $2,000 bronze casket, which was not as extravagant as the $15,000 caskets that had been used like back in the day during like other big gangsters' funerals. Um, and his funeral was not as extravagant as these past gangster funerals we've talked about, like Colosimo's. Um, there were, they were all dead. Or they in jail. were, yeah, they were all dead or in jail. <laughs> um, and while there were some viewings in Florida uh, before his body was flown to Chicago for burial, the the viewings and the burial were were fairly small. The burial itself seemed to just have family. Um, but I did read that they kept mourners, that mourners were kept away. So it, it seems like the family wanted it to be a smaller right. thing. They didn't want an extravagant funeral. Um, and yeah, that is the end of the story for Mr. Al Capone. It seems such, almost like a boring, sad ending. I know, yeah. For like the most notorious gangster and, like, you just think of Al Capone with his, like, cigar in his mouth, like, out drinking and gambling and, you know. I, Walking into the green mill and the music starting. And planning, you know, massacres and, you know, like, and he just declined until he died. Just health, had yeah. unhealthy decline, was it? But while this is the end of the story for Al Capone, it is not the end of the story for the Chicago outfit, uh, which we've talked about. It's not shouldn't be a surprise to you guys. <laughs> we've talked about it in this episode. <laughs> um, they keep going. They they keep going, and we are going to delve into what becomes of the Chicago outfit next week. Yes, 
going to be great, guys. And then, and then it's the end of the season. Yeah. <laughs> You're, this is the penultimate episode. Yeah. We just did the penultimate. Wow. It's crazy. We are so close. Um, quick update on the cherry trees. <laughs> okay. Oh, and I have to get my sources too, but cherry trees first. <laughs> um, they actually removed one in the early 1950s to construct a new wing of the hospital. Okay. And then in February of... 2010, the other tree split in half after a heavy snowfall. Oh, no. And from the branch that fell, they crafted several bowls, trinket boxes, wine stoppers, and pens that they then auctioned as a fundraiser for the hospital. However, there are still cherry trees on the campus that were cultivated from From pieces of the original, so they still claim they have Capone's cherry trees. But it's not too original. I love how fascinated you were by the cherry trees. That was like your main takeaway. <laughs> no, I took many things away. But I found this source that had way more information about cherry trees than I expected. I just yeah. want to see a picture of them. Yeah. Um, but speaking of sources, my sources for this were, of course, like I said, Wikipedia. I used it for all of all of the things. Um and I also use an article called How How Did Al Capone Die? Inside the Legendary Chicago Mobsters Last Years by Marco Margot Margot Yep. Margaretoff. Sure. From all that's interesting.com, which is a really fascinating article. Um, and I, you know, of course, dabbled in my Al Capone Museum as well. And that's a that's it. Good old Al. Good old Al. It's been quite the season following his journey. I know. It's such a sad ending for him and for Bugs. And McGurn. And McGurn. <laughs> yes, he was. He was brutally murdered. But, I mean, he also brutally murdered a lot of people. I mean, none of, <laughs> these, none of these men should be held in high respect. No, no. Um, but it was interesting to get to know them. Yes. And I feel like I learned so much. Yes. Um, we will post some pictures. We'll definitely post pictures of the cherry trees. Don't worry. <laughs> That's good. Because I wouldn't survive. And the Valentine's Day yeah, card. Yeah, the Valentine's Day card. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a picture of Jack McGurn dead. I don't know if we want to post that. But uh, I oh, saw yeah, it several I times. I've seen that picture. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll post some interesting pictures. I'm sure we have some pictures of probably bugs going to jail. There's, yeah. I, I think there's some. Um, yeah. Oh, there's also pictures of Capone in his pajamas wandering around his estate. Oh. So we got those. So anyways, <laughs> so, um, make sure you're following us and check us out on social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter at a top on the wrist. And like we said, it's penultimate episode of season two. So... Hit us up with your ideas for future seasons, future stories. Um, our email is tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I don't know. Like, follow, subscribe, rate, review. Do all the things. Do all of the things. <laughs> all of them. All right. Cheers, guys. Cheers.